Welcome to the Help One Child podcast. This is the show that equips adoptive and foster parents with information from experts in the fields of trauma and attachment. Our hope is that with every episode, you will find helpful insights and practical parenting tips. My name is Kristen Wynn Reyes, and I'm your host today as we cover the topic of attachment. Our guest today is Donna Erickson. She is a valued Help One Child trainer. Um, She also contributes podcasts and blogs. Donna has trained foster parents for over 30 years through the Santa Clara County Department of Family and Children's Services and served as the Foster and Kinship Care Education Program Director for 16 of those years. Donna stays current on her continuing education in her three fields of expertise, nursing, counseling, and educating. She brings experience and wisdom from her years also as a foster youth and now as a parent and a grandparent. Donna, we are so glad to have you today. Thank you for being with us. Thank you, Kristen, for having me. Let's get started. As you work with foster and adoptive parents, what stands out to you on this topic of attachment that you think would be helpful to introduce us today to this conversation? I think today's conversation, Kristen, should really be around missed attachment and the fact that attachment doesn't always come immediately or instantly. The love at first sight approach very often does not apply to attachment with children. And I would like to discuss that a little bit more. Sounds great. Um, Very, very helpful. Could you uh, define attachment and the different types of attachment styles for our families? Well, attachment typically in human behavior comes from both a psychological and an evolutionary theory that says that human beings are connected to one another, that these relationships generally begin early on in life, and that a child early in life should be connected to one or more primary caregivers, and that that will set up for normal social and emotional development. However, um, the connectedness of attachment and lost attachment are just as valid because sometimes those things don't happen early in life. And when we talk about attachment, we can see where that little missed piece might come in. Attachment and bonding became popular topics in the 1970s. Um, two doctors, Dr. Marshall Klaus and John Cannell, uh, who were at Cleveland Medical Center, really brought these terms, if we want to use them as terms or names to light, with their work with mothers and infants in deliveries. Um, Prior to that, and when I was going through nursing school, mothers would have a baby in a delivery room, the baby was taken to the nursery, the mother was taken to a recovery room, and maybe she saw the baby the next day, right? And these two doctors were of the belief that birth was a natural, normal, process. It wasn't really necessary to be in a sterile environment and the mothers should have their babies right after birth. And it was a lot of skin to skin contact and a lot of this connection that they made saying that this would foster and increase attachment between parent and child and that it would enhance the child's development and promote deeper emotional relationships throughout life. And that became sort of the 1970s and 80s Um, beliefs with attachment and bonding, Um, and that if 
know, they kind of gave the impression that if it didn't happen right at birth, that it was never going to happen. And this really concerned a lot of us who are working in maternal child health field. And I did meet both Dr. Klaus and Cannell in 1984. And that was the first question I asked them was, what about in a situation of adoption? Or what about in a situation of a C-section? Or if there was another medical emergency where the mother could not have that baby uh, initially and was all going to be lost because she did, because we were having mothers fearful that they hadn't bonded with their babies. And uh, they, of course, said, oh, no, no, it could happen at any time in life, but it would be ideal if it happened early on. And of course, they wrote books and got lots of publicity. So uh, that sort of gave us the impression that attachment was good and should happen early on. I also heard Dr. Barry Brazelton at a conference once speak about a woman who had not bonded with her baby. Um, and he said, so what? He said, she had six kids. It's hard to bond with every one of them. He made it so light. And he said, it'll come. It'll come. That was his kind of approach. And I thought, maybe we're overthinking this and we're over worrying about attachment and bonding. And it wasn't until I had actually a client that had an eight-month-old birth child that she felt she had not attached to and was coming in because she was really concerned and fearful. And what I found out after working with her, because she had some very strong depressive symptoms, was it turned out that she was very justified. Uh, she had had seven pregnancies. All of them either ended in miscarriage or stillbirth. Mm -hmm. And then she has this child. And she said, there are times I look at him and I just don't even believe he's here. Well, of course not. She was preparing herself to go through that pain of loss and grief again and almost felt like she couldn't accept him because if she did, what would happen if he was taken away? I will tell you, he's 17 years old now. Everything is just great. Oh, wow. But it was really, really tough for her to accept that. And when she heard, oh, it's okay, you could bond with him in a year from now or two years from now, or you can have an attachment. She went ahead and built that trust gradually and slowly. It didn't take that long, of course. But these are the fears that I think many parents have, that if we don't get it right away, soon as that child comes to us, the first couple of days or the first weeks, we're not going to have it. And I don't think there's a timeline on when attachment can occur. So if it's a missed attachment situation, I think there's always that opportunity and possibility that we can try to cultivate it and connect it and hopefully have it be a healthy one. Uh, types of attachment. Um, if we look at the research of John Bowlby, um, Mary Ainsworth, these were the first in the field, in the psychology field, who looked at attachment. Uh, Bowlby gave us four different types, actually. He said there was secure attachment, which makes sense. We're securely attached to someone. It's a healthy connection. There is anxious or ambivalent attachment, which means there might be some insecurity uh, connected with that relationship. Then there's disorganized attachment, where maybe one or both of the parties uh, don't really know if they're connected or have a, an attachment. And then finally, the avoidant attachment, which we sometimes call fearful avoidant, which says that there is no connection going on. Not that it's hopeless and there's no possibility, but that at that point,
point, there is none, the avoidant attachment. Mary Ainsworth's research, which she set up, which I think most people remember, called a strange situation, was where she would have a child with his mother in a room, the mother would leave, a stranger would come in, the child would react, the mother would come back, the child would run to the mother, and that was basically her primary research in looking how attachment develops. But we know that it, it goes beyond that, much deeper than that. Um, but those are, are basically the, the four four types of attachment. Okay. And what are some of the missed attachment that um, may influence how we can raise our children of all ages as foster adoptive and kinship parents for a healthier, more secure attachment? Good question, and we would hope that all children develop a secure attachment. Uh, We would hope that we all as adults have secure attachments, but it's very possible that a child comes to a family and that connection piece had been missed. And we sometimes miss it, and even in therapy, it sometimes takes a while to put it all together to see which pieces are missing. But if we take, for instance, a four-year-old, And sometimes you'll see a a very precocious little four-year-old that looks so connected. Uh, That child will run to anyone, hug them, cling to them like they have a really close, loving relationship with them. But especially they'll do this to total strangers. And it may appear to be perfect and seem like the child is is very... um, uh, healthy and and, and their appearance and their approach and they just can run up to anyone but it's also a very big flag that the child has not developed a a secure or a healthy attachment and that behavior is actually indiscriminate so it lacks the roots of a stable a healthy or sustaining attachment to a caregiver Um, and if it's not been noticed i'm sure that in the future if parents hear about this, they will be able to recognize it when they see it uh, with children. You could have um, possibly a 10-year-old who demonstrates constant independence. Um, This 10-year-old refuses to comply with even the simplest of requests, doesn't follow directions at school, is unpredictable in regard to connections with caregivers. it's kind of on and off like a faucet. Uh, caregivers might describe this child as avoidant or ambivalent, uh, possibly even disorganized. Uh, and that child is also following a pattern of an insecure style of attachment. And even as they get older, a 17-year-old um, maybe doesn't want to connect to anyone, identifies as a loner, um, maybe shows marked signs of withdrawing from others with no friends or going into social isolation. Um, This child may have the ability to contact family, but chooses not to engage. Um, It's it's hard to put this one in a box by itself because we know today kids are living on their cell phones and on social media. And so it has sort of interrupted, and COVID as well has interrupted the physical connection with others. But this would be something that is really apparent uh, to caregivers, that this child just chooses uh, not to be social at all or or connect. So all these kids um, may have had that missed primary attachment phase missed. And um, it's understandable that they are demonstrating these signs and styles of of a lost attachment. Um, But much can be done to strengthen and support them and give hope to caregivers. Thank you. And 
I know that you are very versed in the circle of security parenting approach, and I wonder if you could speak more about that and that how that could support healthier attachment for our children as parents. Hey, a circle of security parenting was a model that was designed in the state of Washington by uh, Kent Hoffman, Glenn Hooper, and Bert Powell, all uh, therapists, psychologists, and we're seeing lots of issues, especially with uh, foster youth and uh, young parents who were having children that were really not getting enough support they felt and weren't really on tune, in tune with uh, connections and attachments with kids. They are all relational-based therapists. Uh, they are all very much uh, in in tune with the attachment theory processes, and that was what based their uh, training. I feel that circle of security works best when it's done one-on-one with one uh, practitioner and one person or couple or maybe family rather than in a group setting, but it could be a uh, done in in group setting. You need to be trained by, I was trained by Kent Hoffman, and you need to have a certificate of training to use their model. But it's a very basic model, a real trust-based model of, of parenting. And if I were to describe it to you with the young children, if you put the palms of your hands together and have your fingers pointing out like you're going to catch a ball with both hands, This is the model that they use in their circle of security to meet the needs of children. And if you look at your left hand, they talk about that as being the place the child leaves from. So your hands are a secure base for the child. The child leaves your left hand and needs to go out to explore the world. Young children do this all the time. And as you let them go to explore, that child is moving away from you, but is still saying, watch over me help me enjoy this with me and then when the child wants to come back it's going to go around the circle of security and come back into your right hand the child's going to say i need you i need you to welcome my coming back to you and then the child is saying in that safe haven protect me comfort me delight in me and help me organize my feelings this is the basis of circle of security And we do this throughout our life, even as adults. We go out in the world, we engage, we explore, we do things. We need a safe haven to come back to that is a protect me, comfort me, delight in me type of of environment. Where there are problems in developing this trust relationship is maybe when the child is ready to come back, the parent is not there to welcome them. Maybe the child has gone out and gotten hurt, fallen down, gotten scared in their exploration. And while they were thinking, watch over me, help me, you know, enjoy this with me, the parent was absent. And in those cases, the child now doesn't develop a sense of attachment and security. That child is thinking, hey, the world isn't so safe. I'm out here by myself. There's nobody to take me back, to protect me, to comfort me. And these are key pieces of missed attachment and where children now think, I have to take care of myself. I can't depend on the adults in the world. I have to just depend on my own abilities. So you can understand that this is a child who then grows up and becomes that 10-year-old or that 17-year-old who is saying, just leave me alone. I don't need you. I don't need to connect with you. Um, Their approach is very much in tune with 
um, Karen Purvis's work that she has done with TBRI, Trust-Based Relational Interventions. And because it's all attachment-based and trauma-informed, it's all focused on developing trust at any age or any stage in life. So it isn't something that has to be done in early childhood. Obviously, it's probably a little easier and more effective, but it can be done at any point. Great. And could you tell us more about how this trust-based intervention and the connected child developed by Dr. Karen Purvis? Um, Could you tell us more about that and how we can utilize that approach to help our children develop stronger attachment relationships? Certainly. Uh, Karen Purvis, who um, unfortunately is no longer with us, but who began her work in Texas, um, has done such a phenomenal job of pulling this all together. And at the uh, Texas Christian University, they've actually named the Institute of Child Development after her and after her work. But Karen Purvis used to say that every child's cry should be met by a loving, compassionate adult. But then she would follow that up and say, you can not lead a child to a place of healing if you don't know the way yourself. So basically what she was saying is adults and caregivers need to know the way to healing for themselves and to understand that before they can truly help a child. And this was brilliant because it's also all about developing trust. Uh, She talks about three points. Empowerment is attention to the physical needs of a child. That was number one. So very primary uh, that you need to meet their physical needs first. Food, shelter, clothing, safety, security, etc. Second one, connection was attention to their attachment needs. Are they somewhat attached, partially attached, indiscriminately attached, however, and then know those attachment needs. And finally, the correction is the attention to behavioral needs, because behavioral needs are always going to follow the physical and the uh, emotional places. And that was her goal, was to work on those three areas. The first place she would say uh, that every child's needs have to be known, which says the parents got to figure it out. And if you don't, one of her famous ways was to say, just ask the child, what do you need? What do you think you need right now? And she said, very often children are able to answer that. Um, The second point that she used to make that I'm very much in favor with is she said, say yes more than no. I'm known as the yes grandma in our family. I say yes to everything. (laughs) I yes them to death. Oh, yes, I understand you want that. Oh, yes, I know you want to eat that now. Oh, yes, I can see that that's not good. I just want to validate them by using the word yes. Once I learned how to use the word yes, I realized I hardly ever said no. And really, sometimes that's all the child wants is validation and support. And it's securing to the child to to say yes. But yes, we can do that later. Or yes, we can have that right after dinner. Those statements work very well, too. So that was a Karen Purvis belief and, and also one of mine. She also believed very much in making eye contact with the child at any level. I used to say you've got to be willing to get down on the floor with those toddlers and be on your hands and knees or squat down. Even if your knees creak, she said, you've got to do that. Because when you make eye contact, it's very important. I listened to a discussion earlier today about anxiety and depression and found a really good trick Uh, from the therapists who said, when you're feeling that way, put your head up and look toward the sky, 
for 30 seconds to a minute. And maybe breathe while you're doing that. Well, what I found interesting about that is that most people who are depressed or sad keep their heads down. They look down, they don't breathe well, and that can change by just tipping your head back and looking up for 30 seconds and doing some deep breathing. So making eye contact makes sense. If the child is down and they're looking down at the floor because they're actually sad or having some anxiety, you kind of get a little lower at them so you can look up at them to get them to make the eye contact. But this is very important. Um, the eye contact does make a, a big difference. Uh, the other thing was using appropriate touch. Um, we know about side hugs and sometimes asking permission of children if you can give them a hug. I, I actually give air hugs to the little kids across the street since COVID. Uh, we haven't been able to get together. And so the little um, one and a half year old and, and almost four year old now are throwing the air hugs across the street all the time. But <laughs> it's another thing that we can do uh, with, with our children too. And mirroring behavior of the child. If the child takes the lead and they're beginning to do an activity or they seem engaged in something, looking interested in it and following with that and, and showing that you can, you know, be along with them in their endeavors and maybe that exploration is huge in building trust and huge in building attachment. And even if it's something you don't like and you don't care about, um, it's very cool. I hate giving this example because I don't want everyone to think they have to follow it, but I had a dad who was, felt very disconnected from his child and it had been with him, I believe almost a year. And all that child wanted to do was go to monster trucks. And the dad said, look at me, do I look like somebody that would go to monster trucks? And I said, no, you don't. But I said, I, it sounds like it's really important to him. And he goes, yeah, I know, I know. Well, lo and behold, he pulled himself together and he took him down to monster trucks. He took earphones and, you know, <laughs> headsets and put them on. And what was interesting was I saw him a month or so after that. And he said, you know, I cannot tell you what it did for our relationship. I cannot tell you how much more engaged he's been with me, how much more comfortable he seems with me. He's more willing to talk to me. He goes, I should have taken him to those monster trucks months ago. But it was something that worked. And it's taking a child's lead. That was really exciting for this little guy and important. And, um, you know, playing with a child, any type of play, I think is, is always going to foster more connection and, and more attachment. But basically, that was Karen Purvis's um, approach in her attachment-based uh, model. And it's being used all over the country and with great success. And her book also, The Connected Child, is a phenomenal resource for parents. Yes. And uh, I have a couple of questions as a follow-up to what you've um, just spoken about. Um, I'm curious for the parent to do their healing work first. And um, if they're on that journey at a parallel time as, you know, fostering or parenting a child through kinship or adoption, um, you know, what's, what is kind of the best practice to do that healing work and to be trying to support a child or work with a spouse, a partner on parenting? Um, if you had some kind of trauma or disrupted or unhealthy missed attachment, perhaps in your own life? Yes, it's, it's a good question. And I would hope that if there's a partner in parenting, that that partner be included in part of that to be supportive. 
I know that I have met many adults in the past who did not want to share what their past experiences were with their life partners. And this can be challenging uh, because they can be seeing things that are misinterpreted because of past trauma that might have occurred. In foster parent training, we very often would talk about this. And I know that in social work interviews, it was a discussion to not to see that you never had trauma in your life, that you never uh, dealt with anything that was negative or dark. But if you had, what were the helps that were given to you and how did you come through that? And that's the same thing I would advise to parents at this point. Sometimes a child's behavior or their past history can be a trigger for you. And you may not have thought about it for years even until something has come up and then it's like, oh no, you know, I can't, I can't do that. I have to avoid that at all costs because it's too close and too personal and too painful for me to deal with it. So what are you going to have to do? Well, you might be able to put the child on hold for a little bit and buy yourself some time. But I think finding a connection, a person that doesn't necessarily have to be a therapist or someone to help you through it, a friend very often, but someone you can trust that you can share some of this with. And then look at some of these activities that we talk about doing with the children and do something for yourself. Trauma doesn't really go away completely. It's just like grief. Grief never is gone. Grief is always there. It might be relived. It might be revisited, but it can be moved through in a healthy way and brought you to a place of better functioning, um, better caregiving for someone else. But you do have to look at it yourself. And if it is to the point where it is immobilizing you, where it's really too painful for you, then you might have to have a discussion with someone about the care of this child and see what can be done to maybe support you until you are able to to work through it. Uh, it's, it's not easy. And we ask parents to do so much as caregivers, uh, whether they're adoptive or short-term caregiving, we ask a tremendous amount of them. And then we also say, oh, by the way, you have to be healthy yourself. Well, I don't know anybody who's really 100% perfectly healthy, <laughs> right. but getting help and looking for help and getting support is absolutely crucial. And nobody can do this alone. Nobody. Yes, yes. And, you know, in um, walking with other parents and being a parent myself on this journey, parenting children from hard places, um, it does seem like our kids are especially capable of pushing our buttons, finding our triggers. <laughs> and, um, you know, really, and perhaps any journey of parenting, it does kind of reveal vulnerabilities in, in us as adults, too, that we need to tend to is, is, I think, part of the learning, part of the growth, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, so, I want to ask you that follow-up question now. Um, so you talked about uh, doing what our kids really want to do as a form of connecting with them. So whatever they're really interested in. I have a question for you because, you know, you mentioned social media and cell phones. And we also have children now who are exposed to Netflix and kind of the ability to watch shows over and over or play video games on their own or a parent's cell phone or a device. And I'm just wondering if the child's true or 
current obsession interest hobby is using some of that um, screen time or just like they are really craving it and they want more of it or they want you to do it with them. How would you um, advise us as parents and thinking of, of our kids who've experienced trauma and missed attachment? How would you speak into that for us? Having young grandchildren now and seeing that as the norm for most of their friends and, and for them as well, uh, is this is a toughie. And we don't want you following something that is inappropriate or going along with a child who might be doing something that's dangerous. So it's obviously going to be following the child's lead when they are doing something that is thought thought out, careful, safe, right, and healthy. Um, I balance the time with my grandkids when they're with me as far as screen time versus active time together, outside time, uh, animal time, whatever it is that we're going to be doing. And so if that's all they want to do and they don't want to do anything else, then if you can find uh, something that is more educationally based that you could do rather than just playing crazy video games, uh, then that could be an introduction to that. And again, you might be going along with them as far as doing something on their phone or their computer, but it's an appropriate form of intervention activity. Okay. It's not really crazy out there. We're not playing, you know, shoot them up, bang, bang. The other point I would say is that if that's all they want to do, I would try to make it a reward and let them think that having that computer safe time, whatever, or um, social media time is a reward for them. And then they're going to need to earn it somehow. So if you're going to spend six hours on your computer and only one hour doing homework and doing maybe household chores, that isn't going to work. So we need to balance that out and make it that it's a reward. Something great that came from Love and Logic Parenting was always saying to the child, feel free to watch TV as soon as your homework is done, rather than saying no TV until your homework is done. Well, now we can use that with our social media or you know, feel free to be on your phone as soon as you finish this or feel free to play the game with so-and-so as soon as we've done that. And then doing an activity together with the child before they get that time. So if it's cleaning their room, uh, chances are they're not going to do a great job. They're going to rush through it because they're going to want to get to that you know, computer game. But go in and do it with them and engage with them just for a few moments. It doesn't have to be 20, 30 minutes, just maybe three to five minutes. And that has developed a little bit of security and trust with them that you're willing to work along with them and say, wow, you did a great job. Now you can go play your game. And the reward for them then being on that, hopefully, device will be that they did something to earn it and to deserve it. Will it happen overnight? No, it won't happen overnight. Um, and I usually have chart pads all over the house when my kids come back after being gone for a weekend or so with little notes and comments that the kids and I have come up with, um, especially the first one, which is when they get up in the morning and the sign says, choose your attitude with mm -hmm. happy face and a grumpy face. Mm -hmm. And we want to start from a simple place. So um, I, I wish I had an easy answer for how to um, get them off of the devices, but 
it's it's the new way of life and i think we just have to work with them on that and i can say that it seems to have helped a bit by having it be a reward for my grandkids um but i'm i'm not going to give guarantees that it'll be a 100 percent, and it'll be overnight it's going to be a long term also doing something for someone else this is another really big thing and this time of year uh, being the holidays is an especially wonderful time to get the kids out to do some volunteering, to help another family, uh, to maybe um, donate some things, uh, to do things like that, because we know that these are things that really make you feel good about yourself and also can develop connections between caregivers and children. Yes. Well, thank you. I know. No easy answers. And I, I'm uh, wishing, like I imagine many of the parents and caregivers listening, that we had you... <laughs> coaching us in those moments of stress or when we're triggered or when our kids are pushing our buttons to say yes. And as soon as you're done with or whatever, you know, such great ways of phrasing and um, really appreciate all those insights. Do you have any additional um, practical tips, parting thoughts, um, parenting tips for us on this topic of um, working on healthier attachment with our children for us before we conclude, Donna? I'll give you a few. Um, the first might be what we just ended with in saying that before you work on your child, you need to work with yourself a little bit to just do a personal self-assessment. Um, and I think also to remember that giving opportunities to kids as a means of support, uh, giving them opportunities to build trust within themselves as well as with you and others is, is very important. Um, opportunities that are missed, that's okay too. Um, Jane Nelson, our wonderful positive discipline lady, used to say that, you know, anytime a mistake is made, it's a wonderful opportunity to learn. So we don't look at mistakes as being really negative, but as opportunities. Um, building safety into their environment um, is going to be critical. And as it was said, both with Circle of Security and with TBRI, is that the child's world needs to be safe physically first, then emotionally, and then behaviorally. So we, we need to consider that. Um, I'm very big on, obviously, brain development and understanding children's brain development and what might be going on for them. So anything that a parent can read or learn about as far as brain um, trauma and also anything that Dr. Bruce Perry writes or Dan Siegel are going to be helpful. Um, knowing the difference between punishment and discipline is obviously when we get into behaviors, it's going to be crucial for parents to understand that. And um, modeling behavior is you know, something we all have to do because the kids are watching us, whether they acknowledge it or not, they're always watching us um, and <laughs> making sure that we're careful. I always say before your child gets their driver's license that what, 15 and a half, your driving skills will improve immensely the six months before because they will be correcting every incomplete stop you made or how many feet you didn't put your blinkers on. So if you think about that, um, pretty much everything you do, interactions with others, um, might be a great way to help that child start developing trust uh, with you. Um, picture success. Um, 
It was something that I've always uh, believed in. Uh, you picture success with a success picture. And I've been very big on taking photos of kids when they're doing something successful and put it on the refrigerator or put it in a frame and reminding them of picturing success with a success picture. Um, the more successes we have, the more likely we're going to uh, follow through and do more um, rather than negative things. Um, cognitive triangle, oh, always so important to remember that how you think will affect how you feel and will affect how you behave and will also go the other way around. So uh, the feelings can affect the thoughts and the behaviors, the behaviors can affect the feelings as well. I mean, it can just continue around and around. Um, the process, um, talking about new habits, um, I'm big fan of, of James Clear uh, in his book, Atomic Habits, which says that basically if you break a bad habit, you better learn a new one because it has to be replaced with something. If we are people that run for the chocolate every time we're stressed and we take the chocolate away, well, what are we going to run for? We've got to convince ourselves that maybe carrots and apples are as good as chocolate which I'm not sure I'm 100% convinced <laughs> of. But, um, but once we change the thought processing and the feelings and the behaviors, we'll change along with that. So creating new healthy habits is important. Um, and not making threats or warnings. I'm really big on that one. Reminders are okay. And just saying, oh, remember, we do this. Or remember, we do that. But not threatening these kids too much. Um and also making things attractive to kids um, and making it simple. Uh, simplicity and brevity is so important, especially with small children. Uh, they, they can't handle too much and it gets really kind of crazy. Uh, making things rewarding and satisfying. This was Stephen Glenn's favorite thing, especially for children under nine or in foster care, we'll say under 11, is the happy faces and the rewards are great. And then gradually we can move away from that. Um, Self-compassion leads to greater success, um, not self-criticism. And so we need to also be kind of fair with ourselves and say, you know, yeah, we're not 100%, but that's okay. We're just working toward that. Um, and uh, my favorite quotes, of course, what's familiar is preferred. Um, and I, for 38 years, do sat in the hospital with parents of small children. And um, large successes are always built on smaller ones. And when you're no longer able to change a situation, we're challenged to change ourselves. And that is, is, a, is a wonderful quote from Viktor Frankl, um, our World War II Holocaust survivor, who taught us logotherapy and how we can be positive in such a negative world. Donna, this has been a great conversation. Um, thank you for your time and insights. I know I have some really helpful takeaways from this conversation for my own parenting, and I'm sure that our listeners do as well. Thank you for listening to the Help One Child podcast. We hope that you found helpful insights and practical parenting tips from your time with us. See you next time.